This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Jack Driscoll. He is the author of four books of poetry, two short story collections, and four novels. Jack Driscoll is the recipient of numerous grants and awards, including an NEA, Creative Writing Fellowship, and two Pushcart Prizes. His latest collection of short stories is called The World of a Few Minutes Ago. He lives in Michigan. We began the interview talking about how he developed a love of language and the desire to write. When I trace it back to its beginnings, it seems as if I started writing when I was 11 years old, which, by the way, the actuarial tables tells us is the year in which you are least likely to die. So in, in retrospect, it seems like um, a propitious place to begin. And because I disliked school uh, so intensely, I thought of it as a place where uh, mostly bad things happened. I would create a quiet space for myself in the midst of noise or chaos, uh, usually by moving, if I had the option, to the back row, where I used to just doodle with words. And mostly it was um, rhyming words, maybe even monosyllabic rhyming words, like love and dove. And then as I got more ambitious, maybe it would be something more like, oh, I don't know, practical and pterodactyl, something like that. And so it was just this fooling around with language. It's, you know, what I call doodling. And then when I became more serious about it, I began um, by writing poems or attempting to write poems. And maybe when you're talking about a, um, a musical quality or a musical matrix, uh, the, uh, you know, the sound of a language itself, um, I think that's called, uh, I think those of us who do this are called logophiles, people who fall in love with language. Um, but maybe the, 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 the prose sentences or the prose rhythms are just a, a byproduct of having written poems and only poems for about the first 30 years of my writing life. I mean, now that we've been talking about this for a couple of minutes, um, I think uh, the, uh, one, one of my early juvenile motivations for writing poems was manipulation. And it was, in fact, a way to make um, girls attracted to me, perhaps to see me in this other light, in this um, language light, in a more romantic light. Maybe it functioned in that way. Did it Uh, work? (laughs) I think probably not. (laughs) I don't know. You started out as a poet, moved to short stories, then novels. And one thing you've said is that writing has gotten harder and harder for you. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that, because one might think that if you've been doing this for many years, it should be getting easier. I I was hired in 1975 to come out to Interlochen. And with one other person, I started what is now the um, uh, Interlochen Center for the AIDS Creative Writing uh, Department. And I was also in charge of the the, uh, Visiting Writers series. And I invited William Meredith early on. This was probably 1976, and I was still in my 20s and naive. And I I asked him what he considered to be a productive year. Uh, How many poems would he feel good about having produced? Keepers. And he paused. He was so dignified and uh, attentive. And 
he looked at me and he said, six. If I wrote six keeper poems, um, I would feel as if I had had a productive year. And I thought, six? I can do that over the weekend. And now, all these years later, I understand implicitly what he said and how smart that was. The reason story writing gets more difficult for me is because I'm asking a little more of each next story. One of the dangers of writing the same story, what I call self-imitation, as if we had a template for it, is that you start um, to imitate. The story becomes too easy to write, which means that you're sort of languishing in that same place. And um, instead of trying to break through that place where you haven't quite arrived, that story where you, that you haven't yet written that's different, a little bit different, and maybe in that way a little bit better than anything you've done before. So you're raising the bar. And just because you've written one successful story does not ensure you're going to write another successful story, because every story will teach you uh, what you need to learn in order for that story to get made. So I have gotten inordinately slow. I write long, long hours, and if I come out, say, after a six- or an eight-hour um, stint in, in the chair uh, with one paragraph that I think is worth saving, I've had a productive day. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jack Driscoll. His latest short story collection is called The World of a Few Minutes Ago. Can you explain a little more something you said earlier? You mentioned that it takes you so long now because you are upping the standards. Are you talking about the language or the plot or something else? I'm wondering what that means. I'm not sure I can define all of it, uh, but I can sense it when I'm doing it. For example, if I start writing from the point of view of a 15-year-old boy and locate the story in northern Michigan during the winter, I know it's a story I've written before and I'll immediately uh, turn away from it. Or at least I'll ask myself if there's something I can do, uh, given its parameters that I haven't yet come to. What I would rather do, what I prefer to do now, is, well, the title story in The World of a Few Minutes Ago is told from the point of view of a 77-year-old former AP photographer. That was brand new to me. Um, I was reading, rereading for, I don't know, the 10th, 20th time, uh, William Gass is in the heart of the heart of the country, in which the speaker says, I am all my ages. And I have been all of my ages when uh, divining uh, point of view characters until I had written a story from the point of view of a 77-year-old man. Uh, I'm a ways from there uh, yet. And so so that's what I mean. And the, the, the story that I just finished uh, just a couple of weeks ago Um, is told from the point of view of a uh, troubled and in trouble uh, 15-year-old girl. So it could be a matter of point of view. It could be a matter of linguistics, a matter of seeing how perfectly distilled I can make the language. The danger with that is that you start to, it becomes too incantatory. Uh, It becomes um, too much about language and therefore it becomes a little bit too much about me. And that is, it, it, it becomes a kind of private delight. So I can get myself in trouble that way where I'm trying to push the language beyond what the story can contain. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do most of your stories come to you in an image? Do you get ideas from newspaper clippings? How how do your stories become a story? Because we are so we get so much stimulation every day, and yeah. you probably get so many ideas. What what rises to the level of an idea becoming a story for you? And yeah. How does that start? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's this uh, sensory bombardment every day. We wake up and look out at the world, uh, and I'm not sure that we can even formulate a good response to it all. Uh, but somewhere in there, I suppose, um, are the seeds of stories. First of all, I, I don't even have an inchoate sense of what the story is going to be. And that's a result, I think, of having written poems and only poems for all those years. I believed then if I could get an interesting first line, a line interesting enough to me, then I could get a second line, which would announce what what the third line might be. And I would come to the end of the poem never having had a clue or an inkling of what that poem was going to be. And that's the same way in which I write a story. So I never have a plot in mind. I don't know where it's headed. I don't know where it's going to end. I really do not know what's going to happen in the, in the sentence yet to be written. And the sentence that is written, again, announces what's possible in sentence number two. And I will never move to sentence number two until I'm certain or certain at the time of composition that the, that the sentence is right. So I just keep following hunches. I also, by the way, worry a lot. But here's how a story, uh, a story that is going to appear in, um, uh, I think, the upcoming issue of Prairie Schooner happened this way. And it's not, um, and this is the way I think that, that most of my stories occur. Vince Gilligan is the um, creator and lead writer for um, Breaking Bad. And he's a former Interlochen student of mine who, I don't know, 30 years after um, leaving, uh, got in touch with me to ask if I, was, uh, if I would show him around the campus. He was coming back. And so I spent a couple of hours walking around campus, and he was a visual arts major when he was here, and more than anything wanted to go into the art building. And so we did. And, he, and, and then he started, he, he started to revert to being 15 again, which was how old he was when he studied in a, an, I think it was an intro to creative writing class with me. And he related this story whereby the uh, the teacher, his art teacher, had brought in a, a bunch of tracheotomy tubes, and they melted the pure silver down, and he made, out of this silver, he made his mother a pair of earrings. And we talked and walked, and later that night I thought, how beautiful that was, this walk around. And what stuck with me, you asked, does image ever start this? And in this case, the answer is yes. I could not get those tracheotomy tubes out of my mind. And so I wrote um, a story about alchemy. And in fact, I dedicated the story uh, to, uh, to Vince Gilligan. Now, that's one example of how a story got started. But what was that story going to be? I had no clue. I had absolutely no idea where it was headed or where it would end. 
So I could see that there's probably some fear and anxiety when you're staring at the page and you're like, what's next? Absolutely. It's, um, in fact, uh, I mean, we can't be prescriptive about these things. Uh, I can't tell anybody how she or he should write, and nobody else should do that either. We're going to get to the end of our stories and the quirky ways in which we do. I mean, one thing we know about the human brain is that no two minds are alike. And, uh, and and so much of this is dictated by personality. So I just have to feel that this is the way in which I can do it, and uh, and there's no other way. But I would not, I would not, absolutely would not advise anybody else to even try and do it my way. It's way too frightening. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jack Driscoll. His latest short story collection is called The World of a Few Minutes Ago. What do you think the role is between memory and fiction? Well, first of all, I've gotten very interested, thus the title of my uh, recent collection, The World of a Few Minutes Ago. I've gotten really interested in the whole concept of time and how it works. Uh, Galway Cannell has a gorgeous poem um, called The Road Between Between Here and There, in which uh, the speaker says, Here I sat by the river steaming boulder and considered time, which is next to nothing, merely what vanishes and yet can make one's elbows nearly pierce one's thighs. And the poet Ed Hirsch says, um, The moment pulls out of the station on time. And I've been fascinated by that, by time, and by the notion of composite time, or what we might call uh, the superimposition of time. That is, um, the capacity of the human mind to live both in the past and the present concurrently, as if they exist concurrently, so we can live there uh, simultaneously. And there's even a word for this. It's called stereoscopic time, which is exactly that, uh, living in the past and the present at the same time. And uh, so memory, in fact, can become a storehouse of information. If we don't have the capacity of memory, we have nothing to write about. Well, you were talking about the world of a few minutes ago, which is the title of your short story collection. Was time an element for you when you were ch- trying to bind these stories together? Or did you sort of, w- when you were writing them, or did you sort of see that connection later? Yeah, I was not conscious of it. I was not conscious. Theme is a byproduct of, of writing. Uh, and hopefully writing well, and it's nothing I sit down thinking about. And uh, I used to find out what my um, themes were, my, or my obsessions, uh, or my my focus uh, by reading reviews. And you know, reviewers would point these things out. I never once sat down thinking I'm, I'm going to write a story that confronts time, but that's in, fa- in fact exactly what I was doing. You know, in geologic time it's clear how brief our stay here is. And I I don't find that debilitating in any way or depressing. I actually like it, the idea that that this life is finite um, and that um, waking up every day, uh, uh, we need to observe it and observe it closely and, and then give it back. In one way or another, it certainly did get into these stories, and most particularly, I think, as 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 you might um, suspect, uh, when the story is spoken from the point of view of that 77-year-old fellow, the entire story takes place in his backyard, except at the end when he walks into the house. But 
the story is all in flashback. It's all about how he arrived on this particular night, sipping a brandy and thinking about the things he's thinking about, reminding himself that maybe his route to this place on this night, standing under the stars in the backyard, was not clandestine, that maybe there was some order to it, or maybe even some providence or fate about it. So it's there, but no, not consciously. I'm wondering if you could read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer. Yes, I'm going to read just the first two minutes of Richard Ford's The Sports Writer. My name is Frank Boscom. I am a sports writer. For the past 14 years, I have lived here at 19 Hoving Road, Haddam, New Jersey, in a large Tudor house bought when a book of short stories I wrote sold to a movie producer for a lot of money and seemed to set my wife and me and our three children, two of whom were not even yet born, up for a good life. Just exactly what that good life was, the one I expected, I cannot tell you now exactly, though I wouldn't say it has not come to pass, only that much has come in between. I am no longer married to X, for instance. The child we had when everything was starting has died, though there are two others, as I mentioned, who are alive and wonderful children. I wrote half of a short novel soon after we moved here from New York and then put it in the drawer, where it has been ever since and from which I don't expect to retrieve it unless something I cannot now imagine happens. Twelve years ago, when I was 26 and in the blind way of things then, I was offered a job as a sports writer by the editor of a glossy New York sports magazine you have all heard of because of a freelance assignment I had written in a particular way he liked. And to my surprise and everyone else's, I quit writing my novel and accepted. And that is the opening of uh, that, what I think is a gorgeous um, novel by Richard Ford. If you're asking me what compels um, here uh, is uh, the quality of the prose itself, which seems to me um, both patient and assured, and the voice of someone now far enough removed from what he calls the blind way of things then, um, old enough now, remembering this, and it goes back to your question of memory, to speak not around but directly into the heart of this developing narrative. And um, that's what I hope for uh, when I begin any novel, that kind of trust in the telling. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jack Driscoll. His latest short story collection is called The World of a Few Minutes Ago. Can you read a short passage from something you wrote that might have been hard to write or something that changed or something you feel you succeeded at? Yes. Um, I'm going to read from the story that I mentioned, uh, The Alchemist's Apprentice uh, for Vince Gilligan, because uh, of what you just said, uh, a story that might have been hard to write. And it wasn't so hard to write because of the subject matter. It was hard to write because I was in a, a dark place. And uh, and what I mean by dark place is I experienced recently, for the very first time in my writing life, what people refer to as writer's block. I didn't even believe it existed. I didn't believe such a thing as writer's block existed. I thought you just stayed in the chair and whacked away at the keyboard until you wrote through it. And now I'm thinking differently because uh, for months I was unable to sit down and trust that I could deliver even a single good word. And 
I'm glad for that experience. Uh, it was difficult, but I'm glad for the experience because it taught me something. It taught me that in order to write out of this dark place, this empty um, vacuum, this void, was going to take um, my best skills, my best effort. I was going to have to write better than I had, maybe better than I ever had, in order to write myself out of it. So I'm going to read you just um, a few paragraphs from that. It's called The Alchemist's Apprentice. My mom says she hasn't the foggiest and that wherever Jimmy Creedy, her stay-over boyfriend, heisted all those tracheotomy tubes is anybody's guess. Possibly Dr. Frankenstein's laboratory, I joked, but she just shrugged like, yeah, maybe. For everyone's sake, she asks Jimmy no questions and neither do I. The less we know, the better. And it's been a few months since he liquefied the pure-grade silver and poured it into cookie molds right there on our kitchen table. Untraceable angels and mermaids and dog bones and bells. Then he double-boxed and packed them like bullion, and sometime after midnight he returned, saying, Mm-hmm, and my mom in her nightgown sashaying towards him, and Jimmy already toasting to rubies on the mud flaps, stardust instead of brake lights. That's the way he talks, always high as a kite after a lucrative score, everything in code, and I figured what he meant was that we were all three of us together, suddenly headed for happier times. A godsend is what my mom contends, given our circumstances. He's late thirties like her and handsome as Han Solo, broad cut across the chest but otherwise angular and tall and blue-eyed, easy-going and good-humored, a state of mind that had been all but snuffed out in our household. He's smart, too, and in ways you might not anticipate. Just last week he brainstormed some weird wind physics, inversions and updrafts and cross-currents, which I then mapped and calibrated and reconstructed for my ninth-grade science project an octagon of box fans arranged around a dunce stool so that when I hit the power switch, the iridescent drawstrings of Evelyn Saxstetter's sweatshirt lifted slow motion sideways and writhed and writhed like skinny electric green eels in the darkened classroom. A few girls shrieked and later Evelyn whispered in my ear, alchemist, she whispered, sorcerer, but it's Jimmy Creedy possesses the magic, the Midas touch, not me. And so that begins that story. So when you were saying that that was hard to write, are you thinking more of an existential hardness or was it the words and the story also hard? Yeah, I, I don't know what shut, I, I don't know what shut down, uh, given my clear belief that um, I and because I've always in the past been able uh, to write through um, these blank stretches or, uh, again, um, through what people were telling me was uh, the phenomenon of, of writer's block. And the, the, the more I tried, the more I failed at the story. And then um, self-doubt sets in. And self-doubt is okay because it keeps you attentive and it keeps you focused. And I've also always believed in that as a positive force. But then it morphed into uh, something that seemed almost crippling. Like no matter what word I was going to put down, and or the or a pronoun was the wrong word, a throwaway word. And I just got and I just sort of talked myself um, into um, 
thinking that maybe that was it. Maybe I had written all I was going to write, that maybe I'd actually come to the end of this. And that's what I mean by that kind of darkness. So it was a way of sort of bearing up and trusting that over time, if I sat, if I stayed in the chair and uh, just kept at it, uh, I, I might actually be able to write my way out. And I did. Well, where do you write? My wife and I live on the Little Betsy River between three lakes. And I have attached to the house what I call my crow's nest. And this is what I'm looking out at. I'm looking out at this river, which I'm doing uh, in the moment. It is an aviary, a nesting grounds for wood ducks, uh, mallards, grebes, uh, blue herons, um, red-shouldered hawks. It is entirely private and surrounded by thousands and thousands of acres of wetland. And my study overlooks all of this from the second floor. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? What I do make part of my daily ritual is walking. I am a uh, peripatetic, and I like to walk not on roadways, but uh, in the woods. And because I live in a rural area, I'm able to do that either on two tracks or pathways or just through the woods themselves. And uh, so I do it for at least three miles every day. I do a lot of my better thinking, maybe even some of my best thinking uh, when I'm walking, when I'm, when I'm in motion. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show my work to my wife, Lois who is a, um, a perspicacious reader, and she is somebody who wants to love my work. And I have learned now, and I even advise students never to give their work to anybody predisposed otherwise. Um, if they are looking for things not to like, they'll find it. And what you want in your perfect reader is somebody who is brutally honest because they want to love your work, and because they want to love your work, they will be the ones to see its deficiencies. And um, I am one of the great withholders. I will not give up my work ever until I come to that place where there is nothing left that I know how to do to it, to improve it, where I get to that point where I think to try anything else might even um, hurt the work. And at that point, I um, read the work to Lois. I read the story to Lois. I don't hand it to her. I read it to her because I want to see how it sounds, not to myself, but to another person. And here are the rules of the house, Mitzi. Uh, after I finish, she has to say that she likes it. She has to say, I like it. Or she has to say, even better, I love it. But only for 20 minutes, at which point I come back into the room and I sit down and then I'm ready to hear it honestly. How have you dealt with rejection? Uh, everybody who uh, has ever entered um, a writing life has dealt with and will, and will in the future uh, continue to deal with it. Uh, I think there are some people who might um, even argue that uh, they're not dispirited by it, but I am. Uh, you know, when I get a, a rejection, it says something. But I never trust a single rejection, and sometimes I don't even t trust two or three or four unless um, it's the, the, uh, the response is consistent. And then I think, okay, uh, l I'll let this be helpful in the revision process. And there was a time when I was getting a lot of rejections earlier in my career, and I even um, put those rejections, I scotch-taped them onto my door. And, and that was the thing I had to pass by before I sat down at, in those days with what was called um, a typewriter. Uh, 
but I try to I try to turn it into a positive thing. But yeah, it hurts for the moment in which somebody says, "No, it's not up to snuff. It's not you at your best. It's not good enough for us to publish." It hurts, but um, I don't give up on the stories. I've never given up on a story in my life, and uh, so I, I, you know, I just sort of I, I turn that toward the process of revision, which um, the poet William Matthew says is not cleaning up after the party. Revision is the party. And um, that's uh, and, and and rejections from editors who are willing to respond um, is all part of that revision process. And what is your favorite word? I'm going to give you a French word again because of where this conversation has gone. And the word is chant de fleur, and it means to be able to laugh and cry at the same time, to be in those two different states of mind, which for me just complicates the emotion, which I like a lot. And I also like how it sounds on the tongue and on the lips when it's said, chant de fleur. So at least for today, that's my word. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Jack Driscoll. He is the author of four books of poetry, two short story collections, and four novels. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.